Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter, chapter number 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. When a child is hurt, who is the person they cry out to? Usually the parent, a mom, or a dad. Usually the mom. I don't know why that is, but that's how it is. When a spouse loses their job or has a very difficult situation, who's the first person that they call? Usually the one they're closest to, which might be their spouse. Hopefully it is. When a person feels down, where do they typically go to or who do they typically go to? They go to the person that they have the closest relationship with. In our text of 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, we will be encouraged as Christians to remember the relationship the Lord has brought us into. And to go to him to find comfort and hope, assurance and faith. We look down in the Holy Scriptures at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. I will read aloud, and you can follow along there at home. Verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we We present this word to the people of Lighthouse Bible Church and whoever is out there listening, and we believe this is your word for them today. So may we listen as if you are speaking. God, may we receive the word. May we live by faith the word. And I pray, God, your spirit will work through this time and these next few minutes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, to Christians who were considered by those around them in the Roman Empire and in the area they were in to be rejects, to be outcasts, and they were persecuted. Verse 1 says that these Christians were spread around Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, which is, the, as we said last week, the modern-day Turkey, some people call Asia Minor. And Peter wrote this letter in 64 AD, about 30 years after Christ's ascension into heaven. And 30 years later, there were Christians spread all around this area. And these cities and churches were in these cities. And note in in verse 1 how Peter identified these believers. He didn't call them Romans. He didn't call them Roman citizens or Galatians or Bithynians. Verse 1, he identified them by the designation of elect exiles of the dispersion. Or you could say it this way, God's chosen exiles he has dispersed. Now if I were to ask you, how would you describe yourself? What would that what would that be? Maybe I, if I said, who are you? Where are you from? You might say, well, I, I grew up in Simi Valley here. 
Maybe you say, I grew up in the valley, you know. Maybe you were one of those, if you're a girl, you were a valley girl, you know, or an or a Angelino. Maybe you grew up in the Midwest. So you'd say, I'm from the Midwest, and you describe yourself by the culture or the place that you're from. But notice here how, how Paul, or how Peter, how Peter describes these believers. He says, they are exiles in verse 1. And the word exile is the governing noun in this, ver- this verse. In other words, this is how he addresses them. Exile is sometimes translated as pilgrim. could be that way in your translation, or stranger, or foreigner. This word speaks of one of a person or people who are living in an area or in a culture that they don't fit in. Maybe they don't fit culturally or, or socially or religiously. And for these Christians, they were treated like foreigners, even though they lived there and they're from there, if you want to say it that way. But they also were, uh, they were foreigners in a sense in their relationship to the people there and their relationship to God. In fact, let me just show you two reasons really why I, I believe that he said, he uses the word exile here. Look down in 1 Peter chapter 4. So turn over to 1 Peter 4 and look in verses 3 and 4, and you'll notice that on the one hand, they were exiles because that's how they were treated. Think about a person who's a foreigner and goes to a different culture and how sometimes they're treated in that culture. And so they, as Christians, were treated as, as people who were, were strangers, were foreigners. And so you see 1 Peter 4 verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you don't live like the, those people who are unbelievers anymore, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. That's how the world lives. That's how they lived in the Greek-Roman culture. With respect to this, they, were, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what do they do? Because you don't join them. They malign you. So they maligned them. They rejected them. They persecuted. Why? Persecuted them. Why? Because they didn't follow Christ, or should say because they followed Christ, and they didn't follow their way, the way of the world. They were holy people, and therefore they were rejected. But exile also identifies not only how they were treated, but actually who they truly were. The word exile in the scripture is used to identify God's special people who long to be with him in heaven. In fact, I read this verse earlier in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham and, and people of faith. And Abraham was, the, the, the term exile was used of Abraham as well. Hebrews eleven thirteen, Abraham acknowledged, or these men of faith acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then verse 16 says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So in other words, the word exile is used here by Peter intentionally to help these believers remember that they are God's people. In fact, Peter alludes to this when he also says, you're exiles of the dispersion. These were people who were at one time were were Gentiles or were still Gentiles, but they were saved out of the worldly lifestyle, they maybe were some Jews mixed in there, but generally these were Gentiles that he's writing to in First Peter. So he's not talking about Jewish people here, but he's using Jewish terminology to identify them. 
So he used the word dispersion. And if you were a Christian, particularly if you were a Jewish Christian, you would recognize this as a word that was used of the Jewish people. Of course, after the Jewish people disobeyed God, God punished them and dispersed them into other nations. But for the church, they weren't dispersed because of punishment. They're actually sent out by God intentionally as ambassadors with good news. But, but the main idea Peter wanted to convey here is this, is that like Israel, you have a special relationship with God. In fact, as you go through 1 Peter, we're going to see over and over, he reminds these believers, you have a special relationship with God. In fact, look down in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. God there in verse 4 is our Father, and he has an inheritance for us that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then you see verse 8, we have a special relationship with Jesus. We don't see him, though you have not seen him. You, though, love him. So this is this intimacy that we have with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses terminology that was used of God's people Israel. Chapter 2, verse 9. We're just going to look at one verse, but this is over and over in different verses in 1 Peter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So he's using terminology that would be used of Israel. And he's saying, listen, you are God's special people. In verse 10, he says, once you weren't a people, you were Gentiles and you were far from God. But now God has brought you into the blessings of being his children to this special relationships relationship. In fact, if you were to describe Israel, one word you could use for them is God's chosen, the chosen people of God. And notice how he identifies these people here. They aren't just exiles of the dispersion. They are elect exiles of the dispersion. And if you were in the first century and you were facing severe persecution, you were rejected and isolated, these three words that described you would be very encouraging, elect, exiles, dispersed. This, this would be like a soldier who's maybe, maybe out in battle, doesn't hear much from home, doesn't hear much from his family. And he gets a letter in the mail and he opens the letter and it's from his wife. And he starts reading the letter in the very beginning of it. She says to him, to my one and only sweetheart. And, and those words of endearment there identify a special relationship that she has with him and reminds him that he shares a special relationship with a woman who loves him. And here, elect exiles of the dispersion really screams out to these Christians, God has a special relationship with you. You are his chosen people. And then in verse 2, we see three prepositional phrases used to describe God's work to bring you into this special relationship. You can see that work through the role of, of each person of the Trinity. So look at verse 2. This is going to be our outline for this morning. Verse 2 describes how God brought us into relationship with him. So it's, he's, we're brought into relationship with the Father by the Father's choice. So elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
through the, the Spirit's cleansing, so in sanctification of the Spirit, and then for the Son's covenant, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. And this passage is an amazing passage packed with a lot of truth. Honestly, I really struggled with preaching this one verse for just one week, but I decided to go for it, and so I could probably spend a couple weeks just on this verse, but we're not going to do that. We're going to keep moving through 1 Peter. But verse 2 is an amazing Trinitarian passage. We believe the Bible teaches that God is a trinity, which means that there is one God. There's one God, God alone, but yet God demonstrates, or the Bible demonstrates, that God eternally exists in three persons. So we call that a trinity. Trinity, tri is three, unity is one, so three in one. The word trinity is actually never found in the Bible, but the concept actually starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and then goes through the entire scripture into Revelation. In Genesis 1, we find that the triune God created the material and immaterial world. In Genesis 1, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in perfect unity of will and purpose, yet each has a distinct role they play in the creation of the world. And so the Father, he plans creation. The Son speaks creation. You could say he does the work of creation. And then the Spirit, he moves and he applies the Father's plan and the Son's work to creation. And they, they fulfill their purpose, and that is to create a world where they can have humans that they can have a relationship with. So God's purpose in creating you was so that he could fellowship with you. And by the way, he didn't need to fellowship with us, but he created us for that purpose, to enjoy him, and that can bring him glory. And so the Bible says in Genesis 1:26 that God, that is singular, God, said, let us, that's plural, make man in our image, in our likeness. So the triune God created you and I for relationship with him. And let me just pause and say, do you realize that is why you are on this earth? You are on this earth to bring God glory as you enjoy him and live in relationship with him. And you might think, well, I, I don't feel like I'm in relationship with God. Maybe you're a person who doesn't know Christ and you're not a Christian. Well, you know what? It's because sin has broken that relationship, right? The Bible teaches that. And then Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see that particularly. And so if 1 Peter 1, 2, we see the triune God all actually works to restore the relationship that God wants to have with us. And so how is that? What does that look like? Well, first, our first point is you'll notice that you, as a Christian, were brought into relationship with God by the Father's choice. By the Father's choice. Look at verse 1. He says, elect, and then verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So let's just look first at that word elect. Some translations tack the word elect onto the beginning of verse 2. But in the Greek, actually, the word elect is right before the word exile. And the word um, elect actually modifies the word exile. So it's appropriate to put it there in verse 1, right before the word exile. But it also functions as 
as a verb. And there's really no verb there in verses 1 and 2. So this is kind of a verbal adjective. And it, it tells, it actually uh, functions verbally to say what God has done for his people. So, so yes, it describes his people. They are elect exiles, but also what God has done for his people. And that's verse 2. Verse 2 tells us what God has done for his people. So honestly, you could actually put it before exile. You could put it beginning of verse 2. You could read verse 2 like this. Exiles elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So, so what does it mean that God has elected us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Well, Peter taught here, when I'm just, I'm just going to say the statement, and then we're going to study this. Peter taught that the Father is the sovereign God who before creation planned to set his love on you and bring you into this special relationship. So notice the word elect. Elect simply means to choose. It simply means to choose. And this word is a word that describes God's decision to bring certain people into a relationship with himself. So when I was in college, I was sitting in music appreciation class. I was a senior. Most of the people in the room were freshmen. And I saw this girl in front of me. She was a brown-haired girl. And I thought, hmm, she's kind of cute. And I thought, I might go after her. And so I chose to go after her, and eventually I married her. Took a lot of convincing on her part. But I made a choice, right? And that's what this is talking about. It's making a choice. Well, we, we call this the doctrine of election. This is a doctrine that many people argue about. It's been very controversial over the years. In fact, many of you right now, probably in your living rooms, are smiling at each other and wondering, how is Pastor Ben going to teach on this doctrine this morning? But what I want to do this morning is actually just present to you the plain facts of Scripture. I think the problem that most people get into with this doctrine is they they get into ideas or theories or conclusions that actually aren't found in the Scriptures. So we we must believe and then teach what the Scriptures say, not what some system comes to conclude. And so verses like 1 Peter 1 and 2, I think, clearly teach us that God is the initiator of salvation. And that's a fact. God chose us. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In fact, look on your screen. You can see Ephesians 1, 4. It's another passage that talks about this. It says that God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Then he says in verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Paul taught in Ephesians that God chose us and chose to save us to be in his family even before creation. What was the basis of his decision? Well, verse 5 of Ephesians 1, 5 says, It's according to to his own will. In other words, he's God. He decided he has a right to do that because he's God. And what was his motive in doing it? Why did he do it? Well, he says, in love he predestined us to be his children. And he did it later on, it says, to glorify himself. So so when you see the doctrine of election in the scripture, most of the time it's presented in the context of God's love for his children. 
The purpose of the doctrine of election is, is not to evaluate who we should preach the gospel to, who we should invite to salvation. You don't find that at all in the scripture. That's a teaching and a conclusion that is actually not only not found in the scripture, it's actually against the scripture. Paul uh, taught there and in Ephesians and, and particularly the Bible just in general teaches that we should preach that whoever so will may come. The purpose of the doctrine of election is to give Christians assurance, to give assurance that even though everyone around you may be rejecting you, that God is the initiator of your salvation and he has chosen you to be his own. Election gives you assurance of your salvation. It gives you comfort that you are loved and nothing can separate you. It gives you the hope that what God has begun, God will finish. And so, so we look to this doctrine as one for Christians to give assurance and hope and comfort. Now, everything I just said are, are facts that are clearly laid out in the Scripture. But after you kind of present something like this, after we see something like this, we all have questions of how does this actually work? Like, what, how, do you, how do you put God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility together? I mean, how can God be the one who chooses according to his own will, yet man has a free will to choose or reject God? Like, how do you, how do you reconcile both of those? So there's a lot of passages I could go to, but would you turn with me over to Acts chapter 13? So go to Acts chapter 13. I want to show you that the Bible presents two realities of God's sovereignty over everything that includes salvation, and yet God holds each person accountable for his own choices to sin and also his own choice to believe the gospel. So you have two truths that stand in, in a human's mind, and the human mind, in apparent conflict, but are completely unified in agreement in the mind of God. And so look in Acts chapter 13. This is a passage that tells a story about Paul going to a synagogue and preaching. Verse 15, Acts 13, 15, the Bible says that they read from the law and the prophets. Then Paul, in verse 16, stood up and he preached the gospel. It's a long message, or at least it's too long for us to read. And he talks about um, how God chose Israel, how God chose Jesus to come, to, to live, to die, and be resurrected. And then he concludes in verse 38, and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, and that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from, freed by the law of Moses. So Paul preached, you can't be saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments condemn you as a sinner that deserves judgment. So because you've disobeyed God's laws, you deserve punishment. And he says, obeying God's commandments can't actually remove your sin. And so what does Paul call these people to do? He says, listen, you have to believe in Jesus. And by him, that is Jesus, everyone, and again, notice, notice that word, everyone who believes is Free. So what is your responsibility? It is, you're responsible to believe the gospel. What's interesting here is that 
most of these Jews actually turned away from Christ and did not believe the gospel. And then Paul went and he preached the same message to the Gentiles of that city. In verse 48, describes what happens. And look at verse 48. The Bible says that when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, and they therefore believed in it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Think about that. So they preached the gospel. People got saved. Some rejected. But in the end of the day, those who were appointed to believe are the ones who believed. So you look at these two truths and you think, well, well, how come they didn't reconcile that there? In fact, you look through the scriptures and you see them talking, you see the, the scriptures through the Holy Spirit speaking about God's sovereignty over salvation and man's responsibility. And you never see them trying to, to reconcile them and help us to understand how these two can go together. They seem to contradict. They seem to be inconsistent. How can God choose me before time, yet I have a choice in time? And so these, these two truths present a divine paradox that, that seem to contradict in the mind of a man, but actually they reconcile completely in the mind of God. Now, some people look at this and they say, ah, that's, the, that's a scapegoat right there, the divine paradox scapegoat. You're just trying to run away from the conclusions you know you should come to. What's interesting, though, is when you think about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, there's actually two divine paradoxes in this text. What are they? Well, it's the nature of God, and it's the work of God. What's the nature of God? He's a trinity. It, it, he's one, and he's also three, and also the work of God. And what is the work of God? Well, it's his sovereign work overall. It's his election of man. And so the trinity is a doctrine that deals with God's nature. Election is a doctrine that deals with the work of God. And there are aspects to God's nature that we just won't ever, on this earth at least, completely comprehend. There's aspects to the work of God that on this earth we won't ever completely comprehend. And actually, you know what? I'm actually okay with that. I mean, seriously, if you could, if you could completely as a human uh, understand God, would he really be a God you wouldn't want to worship? I mean, he's an infinite God. You're a finite being. And so actually the mystery of God and particularly in these particular areas, is actually a comfort. So what we have to do is we come to the idea of Trinity, and we say, well, how does that work together? Well, I don't know, but I know that God says they're both true, that he's one, but yet he's also three eternal persons. That doesn't make any sense in my mind, but it makes sense because God says it makes sense, so that's what I'm going to trust. And, and the same goes with God's, God's choice and my responsibility. I trust it by faith. So, so again, coming back to why would God tell us about his work of election? Well, some theologians call this a family doctrine. What does that mean? Well, there's certain things in my family that I, uh, I ask our kids, don't spread around everywhere, all right? Or, or maybe sometimes when we're sitting at the table and we have some of you over, you know, there might be an inside joke that we all have, and they start talking about that, and it's, well, you don't get the joke. You're not a part of our family. And so I'm like, you know, please, kids, let's, let's not talk about that joke right now. You can talk about it later. And so you could say it this way. It's a family issue. It's something we talk about as a family. And that's kind of what this is right here. It's a, it's a family doctrine. This is just for those who are believers. 
Election is meant for the believer to give us assurance of salvation in the Lord and what he has done for us. And to help us remember that he is the one who has pursued us in relationship. So consider the basis in verse 2, therefore, of God's choosing us. He says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So first notice the, the familial word of Father. He's our Father. Second, notice the description that he foreknew us, the description of God's election. Well, what does this word mean? Look down in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. This word is used by Peter in another place. 1 Peter 1.20, we see that this word foreknow is used of Jesus. So the Bible says, he, that's Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for you. So Peter used this same word in verse 20 and in verse 2, but he used this word in verse 20 to describe God choosing Jesus to come into this world. And you could say that what he did here was he used kind of a synonym for the word predestined. Clearly, Jesus predestined, or I'm sorry, the Father predestined. He predecided that Jesus, before the creation of the world, would come into the world to be our Savior and our Lord. So why does he use this word foreknowledge in verse 20 to describe Jesus coming into the world? Well, this world, this word foreknowledge gives more intimacy to the decision. See, sometimes we can view God as maybe just this sterile person or persons. We can view him as someone maybe before eternity that, that was just making indiscriminate decisions and maybe just cold decisions of, this is what's going to happen in eternity. But actually, there were decisions he made, and they were before creation, but actually foreknowledge helps us to remember that actually those were decisions of love. God was deciding to set his love on his son to come into this world, right? For God so loved the world. So it wasn't a cold decision. This was a decision of love. And the word foreknowledge actually, foreknowledge actually helps us to understand that God's decision was a decision of love. When you see the word know in the scripture, it's not just talking about knowledge. Many times and most of the time, it's talking about a relationship. To know someone in the scripture is to have a relationship with someone. And the word foreknowledge carries more than the idea of God just knowing about people, but actually carries the idea that God decided to set his love on people. Let me show you this. Would you go to Romans chapter 8? So we're going to flip around a little bit. Go to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you where this word is used another time by the apostle Paul. And as you turn to Romans 8, I want you to consider how does this doctrine really encourage and, and help someone who is suffering, maybe depression, maybe suffering or rejection? I want you to think about these people in the first century and as, as people are persecuting them and they're screaming out to them that you're an outcast. You know, your God isn't real. You're rejecting our gods. And these, look, at you can see them. They're, they're right here. They're, they're huge. They're big. Look what they've given to us as as the Roman Empire, you know, these gods have helped us, and, and you're a nothing. And you think about all these things that were said to them, and all really the, the words that would kind of speak to their heart, that would question, are, they, are, they, are we right? Are we really truly, truly loved by God? And think about comforting the idea that God, before time, has set his love upon us. 
But consider as we go into this passage and look at it in Romans chapter 8. Consider a woman whose name was Valentina. She was Russian. And she was 27 years old in 1983. And she was taken away to Siberia. Uh, it was under the old Roman or old um, Soviet Union, the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So there you go. And she was imprisoned in Siberia for transporting Christian literature. So that, in other words, Bibles. She was put in the worst prison in Russia. The Siberian uh, prison there was known as the Valley of Death because so many people died there. Temperatures were often 40 degrees below zero. The intent of the prison was to crush the human spirit with isolation and pain and rejection. So she was a Christian, and she was passing out Christian materials, and that was illegal back in the USSR. But Valentina, she had a strong faith in the Lord. Her parents had taught her scripture and actually had her memorize scripture for these times. And so one of the passages that she had memorized was Romans chapter 8. And Valentina, another believer, would go outside when it was freezing cold, and they would kneel down, and they would cry out to God, they would pray, and many times they would recite Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 presents the picture of God's work for those he loves, for those he has chosen, I should say. And here, the work of salvation is presented as God's finished work. Look at verse 29. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew. In other words, God chose to set his love on certain people. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. So those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And glorified is the idea that we're, we're completely made like Christ. And that will happen when we see Christ, our Savior. And then he goes on in verse 31 and talks about, talks about how do we apply the certainty of our salvation? How do you apply the foreknowledge and predestination, and then also these other things here, God's work for us. Verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I want you to imagine Valentina, as guards are yelling at her, telling her she's worthless, she's all by herself, she's cold, she might die, she's wondering, where is God? Does he love me? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, recognizing that God, you have actually chosen me is actually something that can really be a help to someone who's going through suffering. Verse 35, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Verse 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us all. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. But where does a hope like that come from? It comes from the hope of God's work for us. Valentina would quote this passage over and over. In 1987, she was released from prison, and she testified that God's love was a reality for her during her her deepest, darkest times because she was sustained by Romans chapter 8. And she was certain, no matter how she felt, what the guards said, that God loved her. God had set his love upon her. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. So, so, the, so the word foreknowledge speaks of God, God's choice to set his love upon you by means of bringing you into a relationship with him. So if you're a believer, listen, if you are a Christian, this, tr- this truth here should be a great encouragement for you. I maybe think about a teenager who's trying to live life amongst their peers, and maybe they're the only one that is trying to live for God, the only one that is truly tr- seeking to pursue the Lord in holiness. That can be very difficult. But understanding this truth can help you to understand that God has set his love upon you. He's with you. God is working in your life. Or maybe an employee who's, who's treated like an outcast by his coworkers, if you're not working, when you go back to work. Or someone who's all alone by themselves at home and wonders, well, there's no one here. and Maybe God's not here. Does God really truly love me? Or maybe your own earthly family has rejected you. If you're a Christian, know this, that you are God's special child. And long before you were alive, he chose to set his love upon you. And so you were brought into relationship to God, with God, by the Father's choice. And then second notice, it's through the Spirit's cleansing. Through the Spirit's cleansing. So verse 2 says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctification means to make holy. So the question for Bible students here is, what what work of sanctification of the Spirit is this talking about? There's really three works of sanctification of the Spirit. You have the positional sanctification that happens when you become a believer. You have progressive or practical sanctification. That's the Holy Spirit helping you to become more like Jesus. Then you have final sanctification when you see Jesus your body has changed, your, your nature has changed, and you become holy like the Lord Jesus Christ is holy. Positional sanctification can be defined like this. I think I have it here on the screen. Yep, the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's a one-time work to change you from sinner to saint. So he changes your position. 1 Corinthians 6 says, verse 11, that such were some of you, you were once lost in, in sin like the people around you, but now you are, but, but then you were washed, you were sanctified. So that's speaking about the time when you came to Christ and you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You were made holy. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, by the Spirit of our God. So when you turn to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit washed you, and he made you holy, 
positionally in the sight of God. So you are a saint. Now, there's some churches out there, particularly the Catholic Church, that give sainthood to people. You know, if they, I think they do a miracle, and they do some other things, who knows. The Bible actually already calls us saints. We are saints. We are holy people, positionally made holy by the Holy Spirit when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is a gift from God to those who repent and believe the gospel. I was thinking about, like, what's an illustration? And I thought of a couple, but here was one I was thinking about. There's been many times throughout my ministry, or I should say a few times throughout my ministry, that I stood next to the bedside of someone who had a kidney failure. And usually if that person um, is far along, they have di- they're on dialysis and very painful and very difficult. In fact, there's even people that um, we love and we prayed for that have passed from that. I just think about a person that you're, you're standing next to and they're on dialysis, their kidneys are failing. Maybe the, the head doctor comes in and talks to them and says, hey, listen, we actually have a kidney for you. Someone donated a kidney and we're going to have you go into surgery. And so that head doctor, that lead doctor, he, he organizes the surgery. He, he gets the nurses and he schedules it and does all that kind of stuff. And then, and then there's a surgeon who's a specialist in this. And that person goes into surgery and that surgeon, the specialist, actually removes the old kidney and puts in the new kidney and, and, and actually helps this person go from person, a person who's dying to a person who has life. And I was thinking that's, that's maybe a way to think about this, and that is that the Father is the one who plans. He's the one who orchestrates everything. And the Spirit is the one who actually applies the work. He's the one that actually is kind of like the surgeon who, who changes us positionally. And so, so here's a person that went from dying to a person who has health, Lord willing. And so that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He changes our position. He changes us from saint or from sinner to saint. He changes us from death to life. Then after he changes us, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and he progressively changes us or practically changes us on a daily basis. So the Holy Spirit changes my thoughts and my beliefs and my actions to be more in line with the holiness of Jesus Christ. And so we see this in places like 2 Corinthians 3.8, where it says, we as Christians are being transformed. That's a present tense. That means every day we're being changed into the same image from one degree of, uh, one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this verse is particularly talking about looking into the Scripture and seeing Jesus and the Holy Spirit changing your beliefs and your, and your thinking and your way of life to be according to Christ. We call this progressive or practical sanctification. So this might be like the guy that had the kidney transplant and he gets done with it. And afterwards he needs physical therapy or maybe he needs a nutritionist to come in and help him know how to eat. Or maybe like all of us who have been locked up inside too long, he needs a trainer to help him get physically fit again. But the idea is there's a progressive, there's a progressive work that should be done throughout the rest of his life to help him stay healthy. So in 1 Peter 1, 2, what is this talking about? Sanctification of the Spirit. Is this talking about that work at salvation? Is this talking about the work uh, that happens after our initial coming to Christ? Well, the problem with verse 2 is that there's actually no verb there in verse 2. And even in verse 1, the verb is an adjectival verb. So it's hard to discern what the timing is on this. I looked at commentaries. Most commentaries fall on one side or the other. So half the commentaries say, oh, it happens at the point of regeneration. And some say, oh, it happens throughout your 
time as a Christian. And so what's the answer to it? Well, I guess my conclusion is it's probably it was ambiguous on purpose. I mean, the Holy Spirit intentionally wrote what he wrote through Peter. And so I believe that probably it just includes both of those. In other words, you were made holy positionally when you came to Christ. And, and the Holy Spirit is working on you every day to make you more like Jesus Christ. And so you could maybe wrap it up and say it this way. The Holy Spirit's work in you, for you and in you, is to make you holy so you can have a close relationship with the Holy God. And then last of all, you were brought into relationship with God for the Son's covenant. For the Son's covenant. The last uh, prepositional phrase is one phrase in Greek. It's two there in English. And it's for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And th- this phrase speaks of the purpose of God's work. The purpose of our election, the purpose of the Holy Spirit's making us holy is so that we will live in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you look at verse 2 and you might say, where is the covenant relationship in verse 2? Well, would you last, this is our last text, I promise this, please go to Exodus chapter 24. So Genesis, Exodus, I want you to see this in Exodus 24, back in 1 Peter 1, 2, he says that it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. The word obey actually means to listen and then to do. It's a compound noun. That means listen and then do. Sometimes I'll tell my kids, you know, hey, go go do this. Like the other day, my kids are at the table and they were coloring and doing some other things. And one of my uh, one of my children, I said, hey, I want you to get up and go help your mom. So, okay, the child said, and just stayed there, kept doing what they were doing. Well, that's not obedience, isn't it? Because obedience is hearing, it's listening, and then it's following up with doing that. So what, that's what we see here, actually, in, in uh, Exodus chapter 24. The people say, we hear the word of God, we now will do the word of God. And you see this, this covenant relationship in Exodus. So look at verse 7, Exodus 24, 7. Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it. That's the Bible, the scriptures, the the Pentateuch there, and he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and he said, all, I'm sorry, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So we hear it, we'll do it. Another way to say it is we will be obedient. And then Moses took the blood of the sacrifice, he threw it on the people, and he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with with all these words. Now, first of all, imagine that. What was that like to be standing out there and saying, what the Bible says, what the Lord says, we will do, and then have blood splattered on you? What was the point of him doing that? Why did Moses do that? Well, Moses read the scriptures. The people all responded, we will obey. And then that blood was a reminder that that God would apply the, the promises that he had for them based upon the sacrifice that they had made. So it was no magical thing. It wasn't like they got blood on them. They're like, oh, all of a sudden now we can obey. Or, you know, it wasn't like, oh, save this blood, you know. It was, it was just actually a symbol to say, listen, God will take 
the promises he's made and he'll take the sacrifice you have done and he will make sure that is applied to you. And they were to respond back in that covenant relationship with obedience to the Lord. And of course, we know if you read through Exodus, they, they didn't follow through on their end of the bargain, that's for certain. But this was a covenant of love and of trust. And so for the last time, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. And notice that's how Peter describes our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a covenant relationship. Like the old covenant with Israel, we are now in a new covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the new covenant, we listen to God's word and the scriptures, and then we obey what we hear we will do. I think this is, this is why it is so important for us as God's people to be listening to the preaching of God's word and to be in the scripture on a daily basis in fellowship with the Lord. I think probably one of the saddest spiritual consequences of this time of COVID-19 is that many of God's people, just in our country in general, I think have taken a vacation from the serious listening of God's word. And it's difficult, right? You're at home, you're on the couch, some of you have already fallen asleep, <laughs> right? And you have a drink in one hand, the kids are running around, the dog's barking, you know, got to go, go to the bathroom. And, it, and so it's difficult. So I, I recognize that. Sometimes it's easy to turn on the news and you have, you know, Fox News and CNN and, and then Pastor Ben, you know, just another voice out there or whoever it is that you're listening to. And if we're not careful, we can be so casual about the preaching of God's word. And forget this, that God actually is speaking to you through the preaching of his word. And if you're from Lighthouse Bible Church, I, I particularly study, pray about you, think about you. And I'm coming to, to, if you want to say it this way, to feed you. And it's important for us to recognize that what we're being fed with, was, is, with is actually the bread of heaven. It's actually God's very words. So we need to take it that seriously. This is not just another broadcast, right? This is actually the way that God has intended for us to grow. And it's fine if we go and, you know, watch some other people preach. I think that's really good. Get as much preaching as possible. But we really need to focus on this time as a church. Like, this is our time set aside by God. We're committed to Christ. We're committed to each other. Even if we can't gather together, we're going to be committed to listening to God's word, to hearing it, but not just stopping there, but actually going and obeying the word. The next part of the covenant is that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, now this is figurative. Like You're not sprinkled with the real blood of Christ. Now, if you were sitting here, you might be sprinkled to my spit. Right? I've been doing that a lot here. But this is actually figurative. It's the picture here that, that God takes the bloody sacrifice of Jesus and he applies those blessings and those promises to us. And what are those? Well, we're not going to study those today. That's going to be the rest of 1 Peter, really, the blessings of the inheritance in Christ. Some of those include forgiveness. Some of those include a place in heaven, God's presence, the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus advocating for us, the constant work of Christ on our behalf. And so, so the blood of Jesus is a symbol, or I should say the blood um, sprinkled here is a symbol of the blood of Jesus that 
that guarantees that we can enjoy the promises of the Lord. So the purpose of God's, of God the Father's election, the purpose of the Spirit's sanctification is so that you would enjoy the covenant relationship of the Son. So what does that look like practically? I mean, we talked about a lot of doctrine today. What does that look like practically? Well, verse 2 actually clearly lays that out. It looks like loving obedience to Jesus. Again, it's, it's the idea of loving covenant obedience to the Lord, following the Lord Jesus Christ. With, with sermons like this, it's good for us to step back and evaluate how or what is our relationship with Jesus Christ right now? What is our relationship with Jesus Christ right now? And if you're a Christian, if you've turned to Christ and you're believing the gospel, what is your relationship like with Jesus right now? I mean, is your purpose in life about following the desires of the world, the pleasures of this world, or is it really about living in relationship with, with Jesus Christ? I mean, are, are, you, are you seeking each day to, to be more like the people of this world and to fit in more with them? Or are you seeking each day to live in a relationship with the Lord and live as God intended you to live, as an exile? I mean, are, you, are you enjoying speaking to the Lord in prayer and reading his word? Are you, are you looking to the Holy Spirit to change your heart on a daily basis? Are you following the Lord in obedience because you love him and he has done so much for you? There's a lot going on in our world, isn't there? But remember this, Christian, remember this. When you feel lonely, when you feel rejected, when you feel maybe even persecuted. Remember this, before there was a world, God selected you to be in a relationship with him. And that's what God values. And your relationship, your sweet, loving relationship and obedience to the Lord brings God glory. You were brought into a relationship with God. The Father, he chose to set his love upon you. The Spirit sanctified you so you would serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think if you're listening this morning and you're without Jesus today, you have not turned to the Lord, there is much, if not almost all the sermon, does not apply to you yet. does not apply to you yet. Because you are invited to believe in Jesus Christ. Christ calls you to, to believe in him. The verse the kids went over this morning, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you can have this special relationship with Jesus Christ. You just got to believe that Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life in your place. He died for you, the sinner, he died as he died for sin on the cross in your place, the sinner. And he rose again and he offers to you the gift of eternal life. And if you believe in him, you commit your life to Jesus Christ, he will save you. He will rescue you. And the simple call of God is for you to turn and believe in him as your savior. And so if you're without Christ, let me invite you to do that this morning to bow your 
your heart before the Lord, to humble yourself before the Lord and trust him, commit your life to Christ. And believer, as we, as we end here this service, would you uh, pray with me as I pray? And think about these truths that we've gone through today. If you're, if you're a Christian, you say, you know what, through this time, through the past couple of weeks, I've, I've been strained from my relationship with Christ. I've not spent intentional time with him. Maybe I'm pursuing the things of the world more than I'm pursuing Jesus. Just come to him in confession and, and cry out to him and pray, with, pray to him. And uh, maybe you say, I, I need to grow in that. Or maybe I have some questions. And so, listen, I'm here still for you. Um, please give me a call. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe um, if you're a family, you guys can, after this, just talk about um, what this all means together and talk about what your relationship with Christ looks like right now in your life. And so when we're done here, maybe you can conclude with that. Maybe grab a bite to eat and talk about that as a family. If you have questions about what I talked about today, I would love to talk to you, okay? So we have a Zoom call tonight um, and on Thursday with our missionaries. And then on Tuesday, we don't have anyone scheduled right now. So I think that one's going to be a general one where we're going to pray. But I thought, you know, I'll field any questions that you might have. We can talk about it on that Zoom call, okay? So that one probably will be the most attended Zoom call that we have. No. But um, I would love to answer any questions you have. Feel free to give me a call or an email. Let's, uh, let's end in prayer. Would you pray with me as I pray to the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we... We pray to you as our God, who we actually completely cannot comprehend, and definitely not in this, this end of eternity, this side of eternity. On the next, I think it probably will be something for the rest of eternity where we will seek to know you more and still never be able to fully comprehend you. So the vastness of your, of your person and of your work, it, it causes us to fall back in awe of your majesty and your glory. But God, what you have revealed to us about yourself also causes us to say thank you. Thank you that you have set your love upon us. We can sometimes view you uh, in a worldly way that's just sterile and distant. And definitely you are, you are transcendent, but you also, God, are very close to us. You also, God, have set your love upon us. And so I pray that as Lighthouse Bible Church will embrace the work of God, that you love us that you have given us assurance because your work in us will be complete, will be completed, that we can trust that, God, uh, we're in this covenant relationship because you have chosen to show your love to us. I do pray for people, maybe someone who's listening to this right now, and they're wrestling with, you know, should I, should I trust Christ? Should I come to Christ? I pray, God, you awaken their soul to the, the truth of the gospel. And I pray Today will be the day of their salvation. And I pray for our church, God. We can be so down sometimes. So I pray that you encourage our church. Lift us up in the name of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, according to the love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, Lighthouse Bible Church. And uh, again, let's be connecting with each other. Let me remind you to... Uh, to be praying for one another and praying for our country as we have a lot of decisions to make as a church and a lot of decisions to make as a country and uh, pray that God will bring our country back to himself. Amen.